And although he was very curious about Danny Boy, Asmar had learned quickly not to ask questions. Guy had nothing to say on the subject. The pictures of Danny Boy were enlarged to eight by tens and tacked along a wall in the kitchen of the cottage where they were studied by grim men with hard eyes, men who chain-smoked strong cigarettes and shook their heads at the photos. They whispered among themselves and compared the new photos to the old ones, the ones from his previous life. Smaller man, odd chin, different nose. His hair was shorter and his skin was darker. Was it really him? They had been through this before, in Recife on the northern coast, 19 months earlier when they had rented an apartment and looked at photos on the wall until the decision was made to grab the American and check his fingerprints. Wrong prints, wrong American. They pumped some more drugs in him and left him in a ditch. On the fourth day of the Danilo Silva watch, the tracker saw him leave home in the Red Beetle. They followed as he raced across town to the airport, jumped on a small commuter at the last moment, and was gone. There was instantly a plan to enter his home and catalog everything. There had to be records. The money had to be tended to. Guy dreamed of finding bank statements, wire transfer reports, account summaries, all sorts of documents arranged in a neat portfolio, which would lead him directly to the money. But he knew better. Danny Boy, if he was their man, would never leave evidence lying around. His home would be carefully secured. Wherever he was, he would probably know the instant they opened his door or window. So they continued to wait, cursing and arguing. And Guy made his daily call to Washington. Then, on the fifth day, Danny Boy returned. They trailed him back to Huachiridentius, and everybody was happy. They grabbed him while he was out on his daily jog and shoved him into the back of a van. Osmar sat to his right, another Brazilian to his left. The Brazilian to Danny's left jabbed a needle into his arm. Danny stiffened and jerked, then realized it was hopeless. He actually relaxed as the last of the drug entered his body. His breathing slowed. His head began to wobble. When his chin hit his chest, Asmar gently raised the shorts on Danny's right leg and found exactly what he expected to find. Pale skin. The running kept him thin, and it also kept him brown. Another hand removed his keys from the Velcro runner's pouch stuck to his waist. When they crossed the border into Paraguay, the guards nodded without leaving their chairs. Immediately the roads grew worse, the terrain steeper. In an hour they reached a cabin in a crevice between two pointed hills, and they carried Danny inside like a sack of meal. Danny snored heavily as prints were made of all eight fingers and both thumbs. Then the printman got out the master set, those freely given by Danny Boy when he was much younger back when he was Patrick and seeking admission to the State Bar of Louisiana. Odd, this fingerprinting of lawyers. Both sets were in fine shape, and it was immediately obvious they were a perfect match. It's him, the print man said in English, and the others in the party actually clapped. Now there was work to do. Danny Boy, still comatose, was given another shot and carried to a small bedroom where he would be interrogated and tortured if necessary.
The barefoot boys playing soccer in the street were too involved in their game to look up. Danny's key ring had only four keys on it, and so the small front gate was unlocked quickly. An accomplice in a rented car came to a stop near a large tree four houses down. Another, on a motorbike, parked himself at the other end of the street and began tinkering with his brakes. If a security system started howling upon entry, the intruder would simply run and never be seen again. If not, then he would lock himself in and take inventory. The door opened without sirens. The security panel on the wall showed that the system was disarmed. Even so, the intruder stood perfectly still for a full minute. Then he removed the hard drive from Danny's PC and collected all the disks. He rummaged through files on his desk but found nothing but routine bills, some paid, others waiting. Five minutes after the door opened, a silent signal was activated in Danny's attic, and a phone call was placed to a private security firm eleven blocks away, in downtown Ponta Paran. The call went unanswered because the security consultant on duty was swaying gently in a hammock out back. A recorded message from Danny's house informed whoever was supposed to be listening that there was a break-in. Fifteen minutes passed before human ears heard the message. By the time the consultant raced to Danny's house, the intruder was gone. So was Mr. Silva. The directions in the file were specific. On such alarms, do not call the police. Try first to locate Mr. Silva and in the event he cannot be found at once, then call a number in Rio. Ask for Eva Miranda. With barely suppressed excitement, Guy made his daily call to Washington. He actually closed his eyes and smiled when he uttered the words, It's him! His voice was an octave higher. There was a pause on the other end, then, You're certain? Yeah, the prints are a perfect match. Another pause while Stefano arranged his thoughts, a process that usually took milliseconds. The money? We haven't started yet. He's still drugged. I'm by the phone. Stefano hung up, though he could have talked for hours. Guy found a perch on a stump behind the cabin. The vegetation was dense, the air thin and cool. The soft voices of happy men drifted up to him. The ordeal was over for the most part. He had just earned an extra $50,000. Finding the money would mean another bonus, and he was certain he'd find the money. Downtown Rio, in a small, neat office on the 10th floor of a high-rise, Ava Miranda squeezed the phone with both hands and slowly repeated the words she had just heard. The silent alarm had summoned a security guard. Mr. Silva wasn't at home, but the car was parked in the drive, and the house was unlocked. Someone had been inside. She called the house on Huachira Dentius herself, anyway, and no one answered. She called the number to a cell phone he sometimes kept nearby, and no one answered. Then she dialed the number at his apartment in Curitiba, a city of a million and a half in the capital of the state of Paraná. To their knowledge, no one knew of the apartment. It was leased under another name and used for storage and infrequent meetings. They spent short weekends there occasionally, not often enough to suit Ava. She expected no answer at the apartment and got none. Danilo would not go there without first calling her. 
When the phone calls were finished, she locked her office door and leaned against it with her eyes closed. Associates and secretaries could be heard in the hallway. The firm had 33 lawyers at the moment, second largest in Rio, with a branch in Sao Paulo, and another in New York. Telephones and faxes and copiers blended together in a busy, distant chorus. At 31, she was a seasoned five-year associate with the firm, seasoned to the point of working the long hours and coming in on Saturdays. Fourteen partners ran the firm, but only two were women. She had plans to change that ratio. Ten of the 19 associates were female, evidence that in Brazil, as in the U.S., women were rapidly entering the profession. She studied law at the Catholic University in Rio, one of the finer schools, in her opinion. Her father still taught philosophy there. Her father had insisted she study law at Georgetown after studying law in Rio. Georgetown was his alma mater. His influence, along with her impressive resume, striking looks, and fluent English, made finding a top job with a top firm a quick chore. She paused at her window and told herself to relax. Time was suddenly crucial. The next series of moves required steady nerves. Then she would have to disappear. There was a meeting in 30 minutes, but it would have to be postponed. The file was locked in a small fireproof drawer. She removed it and read again the sheet of instructions, direction she and Danilo had covered many times. He knew they would find him. Ava had preferred to ignore the possibility. Her mind drifted as she worried about his safety. The phone rang and startled her. It was not Danilo. A client was waiting, her secretary said. The client was early, apologized to the client she instructed, and politely rescheduled the appointment. Do not disturb again. The money was currently parked in two places, a bank in Panama and an offshore holding trust in Bermuda. Her first fax authorized the immediate wire transfer of the money out of Panama and into a bank in Antigua. Her second fax scattered it among three banks on Grand Cayman. The third yanked it out of Bermuda and parked it in the Bahamas. It was almost two in Rio. The European banks were closed, so she would be forced to skip the money around the Caribbean for a few hours until the rest of the world opened. Danilo's instructions were clear but general. The details were left to her discretion. Ava decided which banks got how much money. She divided, dispersed, rooted, and rerouted. It was a drill they had rehearsed many times, but without the specifics. Danilo couldn't know where the money went. When Ava had finished her faxing, she went down to a payphone in the lobby and made two calls. The first was to her apartment building manager, to see if anyone had been to her apartment in Leblon. The answer was no, but the manager promised to watch things. The second call was to the office of the FBI in Biloxi, Mississippi. It was an emergency, she explained as calmly as possible, with her best effort at accentless American English. Agent Joshua Cutter, she asked when the person she had requested finally picked up. Yes. She paused slightly. Are you in charge of the Patrick Lanigan investigation? She knew perfectly well that he was. A pause on his end. Yes. Who is this? They would trace the call to Rio, and that would take about three minutes. Then their tracking would drown in a city of six million. But she looked around nervously anyway. I'm calling from Brazil, 
she said, according to script. They've captured Patrick. Who? Cutter asked. I'll give you a name. I'm listening, Cutter said, his voice suddenly edgy. Jack Stefano. Do you know him? A pause as Cutter tried to place the name. No, uh, who is he? A private agent in Washington. He's been searching for Patrick for the past four years. And you say he's found him, right? Yes, here in Brazil. They found him today, and I think they might kill him. Cutter pondered this for a second, then asked, What else can you tell me? She gave him Stefano's phone number in D.C., then hung up and wandered out of the building. Guy flipped through the papers taken from Danny Boy's apartment. A monthly statement from a local bank listed a balance of $3,000. The only deposit was for $1,800. Debits for the month were less than 1000 The hard drive from his little computer contained only a journal about his adventures in the Brazilian outback. The last entry was almost a year old. The scarcity of paperwork was in itself very suspicious. Only one bank statement? Who on the face of the earth keeps only last month's bank statement in the house? What about the month before? Danny Boy had a storage place somewhere, away from his home. It all fit nicely with a man on the run. At dusk, Danny Boy, still unconscious, was stripped to his tight cotton briefs. He was placed on a one-inch sheet of plywood next to his bed. Holes had been cut in the board and nylon ropes were used to secure his ankles, knees, waist, chest, and wrists. A wide black plastic belt was strapped tightly across his forehead. An IV drip bag hung directly above his face. The tube ran to a vein above his left wrist. He was poked with another needle, a shot in his left arm to wake him up. His labored breathing grew more rapid, and when his eyes opened, they were red and glazed. Then he was given a shot of sodium thiopental, a crude drug sometimes used in an effort to make people talk. Truth serum. Hello, Patrick, Guy said pleasantly. Are you hungry or thirsty? Thirsty, Patrick said. Guy unscrewed the top of a small bottle of mineral water and carefully poured it between Patrick's lips. Then he leaned closer. Let's settle something right off, he said. While you were sleeping, we took your fingerprints. We know precisely.